you are the young working saints, I hear. I am a, uh, an, an old working saint. <laughs> we retired recently. Well, I thought um, maybe I had a little burden to share a few things, but I thought maybe with, with you, I could start with just sharing you the testimony of my family and our coming into the church life and then make some points related to it that I had a burden to speak with you about. Um, first off, you know, okay, let me back up. I came to Australia before most of you were born, actually, in 1986. Nobody in this room was born <laughs> by at that time. In 1986, I was in the full-time training in Taipei. And at this time of the year, in fact, because we finished the fall term and then we had to leave the country for our passports, for our visas to get renewed. And so they assigned all the trainees all over Southeast Asia. My sister also came to the training. My flesh sister came to the training with me. And me and my sister and another couple, we got assigned to Australia. That was awesome. So we went to, um, to Melbourne and stayed, I still remember the brother's name, Austin Hughes. Does anybody know that name? I understand he lives in the United States now. So I haven't seen him in many years, but stayed with his family in Melbourne uh, for, I think, for a week and a half. And we got to go to the beach, and <laughs> we had a great time. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> but I want to back up and just tell you a little bit about how my family, I say my family, I was always very, um, I'm a church kid, and so when it came time to give your testimonies, I was always very self-conscious because I didn't have a testimony. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like my, my parents have a testimony, but I don't really have a testimony. <laughs> I always felt, uh, felt bad about that. But over the years, I have kind of embraced my family's testimony more because it's quite amazing what the Lord did. But let me ask you this. Do you know, do you know where the state of Georgia is in the United States? No. Okay. I'm going to give you a geography lesson. Because, and I don't blame you, because I, I am learning about Australia right now. I, 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 I was very poor when we got here. I said, now, let's see. So Perth is like an hour away? <laughs> then I find out, no, no. It's on the other side of the country. Okay, this is a quick United States map right here. Let's see. That's kind of the United States. You know what this is? That's Texas. That's Texas. You know what this is? Florida. Okay, this is Georgia right here. Right above, right above uh, Florida. And Atlanta, where I'm from, is right there. And it's the uh, capital of Georgia. Um, my family is originally from Georgia. My mom and dad. They were born and raised there. And a quick uh, story about how we, we touched the church life. Um, my dad was a lawyer in, in Georgia, and a young lawyer, had just been out of law school for a few years, got on with a very successful law firm in Augusta, Georgia, which is a, what that's famous for is for a golf tournament. You might have heard of the Masters but that's played in Augusta, Georgia. You heard of that? Yeah. Um, so anyway, he got on with a very successful law firm, and they were set. Their life was all in front of them. They were in their mid-20s at this point. Yeah, probably mid-20s because he finished law school. Probably mid, mid to late 20s. And very successful law firm, had a bright future ahead of them. The culture in the South... We call that the South, uh, Georgia, uh, Carolinas, Louisiana. There's a very s distinct culture in the southern United States. And, um, of course, there's still probably some lingering feelings of, of the Civil War, where it was kind of us against 
the rest of the, the South against the rest of the country, and of course we got beat. Um, and we were on the wrong side of history regarding slavery and you know all that kind of thing. So there's probably still some some uh, feelings of inferiority uh, in the South, but that has caused people to become very family-centered. Um, your whole world revolves around your family, and by your family, I mean your extended family. So. Every Sunday after church, my whole extended family would get together for lunch every, every Sunday and have a big family lunch, and this was a, a, a way the family bonded together. So uh, my mom and dad were from the same town. They had no intention of leaving that town, and that's very common in the South. You, you, you grow up where you were born, and you raise your family, and you... You enjoy your extended family, and life is good. So, and he had this very good job, and certainly bound for, for doing very well in life. My dad was a real seeker of the Lord. He got saved in high school, and um, he really sought the Lord a lot. And they went to every denomination in Augusta, trying to figure out where should we be meeting, and what is the Lord doing today? Um, and at that time, at this particular time I'm talking about, they had three kids. It ended up with five children. They had three at that time, and I was the oldest. So I was like in kindergarten, so maybe like five years old. A sister who was three and another sister who was one. So they were considering, uh, they were set for their, for their life as far as they could tell. But my dad inwardly, he just had this, what is the Lord doing on the earth. There's got to be more than, than, than this. And um, he began to pray and seek the Lord about what to do. And he began to have this feeling that he should become a missionary. Crazy thought to their, their culture at that time. Just completely foreign thought. He didn't even tell anybody for a while. And he just prayed about it and considered it. Eventually, he told my mom, and my mom was very much one with my dad, and said, if that's how you feel, then okay. So they, they sold everything, their house, their cars, furniture, took their three kids into a Volkswagen van, and they joined the, a group called Wycliffe Bible Translators. And that's a, um, I don't think it's that popular these days, but back in the day it was fairly, I mean, it was a very respected mission. Their, their goal is to translate the Bible into every language on earth. And so you, um, you go through a training program, a five-year training program, to learn how to, you learn languages, and then you learn how survival skills, because of course, you know, all the big languages have been taken already, so you're down to a lot of obscure languages. You gotta go where those languages are. So you had to learn uh, how, to, how to live in, in some remote areas. So my parents, uh, we, we went to South America, to um, Bolivia, and that was where they were assigned for their training. And we lived in the jungle for a period of time. We built our own house out of bamboo. We built a mud stove that we cooked on. If you, if you had met my mom, you would think, well, that is a miracle. Because you know, her idea of, a, of camping was going to the Holiday Inn. You know? <laughs> she was not a camper by any stretch. So this was a big deal. And then they had these three little kids. you know, And we were living in the jungle. Literally the jungle, like where the, the mission would parachute food into us kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we was out, and it wasn't like you'd drive down the street to the city. I mean, we, I don't even know where we were. We were in the middle of the jungle. And um, then they were also in, we, we spent time in, in some cities where they were learning languages. But anyway, while we were in the jungle, in South America, another missionary came to my dad and said, I read a book I think you would like to read. 
is called The Normal Christian Church Life by a man named Watchman Nee. My dad had never heard of Watchman Nee. In the South, he, it wasn't big. <laughs> they didn't know about, about Watchman Nee. So he gave him that book. He read that book cover to cover. And he finished it. He said he had two reactions. First one was, this is what I'm looking for. And the second reaction was, too bad it doesn't exist. <laughs> because in his mind, he tried every church in Augusta, and there was no such thing as what was described in that book. So he just thought, well, whoever this man is, this is awesome, this is great, but it's not practical, it doesn't exist, and that's sad, because that's what I'm looking for. Well, kind of a long story shorter, the mission itself, the headquarters, was located in Southern California, in Santa Ana, California, not far from Anaheim, actually. And after we'd been down there for two and a half years, the mission called my dad and said, we would like you to come back to the home office in Southern California to be our in-house legal counsel, since you're a lawyer. And um, he talked to all the missionary friends around, around him, and they all said, don't do it. You have to, before you can begin your life's work in this mission, you have to complete this five-year training program. So if you go there and you work for a few years in the home office, you're gonna have to come right back here and do this over again, because you have to do this. So you're already here, just finish it. It's two and a half more years, you'll be done. Then you can decide. Well, my dad prayed, and he felt, no, I need to go back. To, I need to go to Southern, they'd never been to California, actually. I need to go to the Santa Ana, California, and work in the home office. And they, um, they got to California, and within about a year, my mother was invited by a woman that she met to attend a Bible study. She went to this Bible study, and the only thing she could do, she came home and told my dad, said, you need to meet these people because they talk like you do. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out this was a group of sisters in the church in Southern California. And I mean, I don't know, that's remarkable. <laughs> I mean, here we were on the other side of the United States. We had to go to South America to get a ministry book so that he even knew what he was looking for. We get to California, within a year, they're sitting in a church meeting. What? How does that happen? Only the sovereign God can make that happen. It's quite, quite amazing. And I can, I can to this day, because at that point, I was, um, I was uh, eight years old when they came into the church life. And I can still remember our first church meeting. It was a prayer meeting of all things. We went to a prayer meeting with a church in Yorba Linda, California. And I can still remember my dad sitting on the front row, of course. And I sat right between his legs on the floor. And everybody's yelling, you know, what are they yelling about? What is everybody screaming about? But it's scary in here. So I just, I was hanging on to his legs. And uh, my dad's, uh, his testimony was, he sat down, he said, I'm home. I'm home. This is what I've been looking for all these years. I'm home. They quit the mission within a few months. Living in Southern California, he <clears throat> was not a member of, we have a thing called the Bar Association that each state has to practice law. You have to belong to the bar in that state. He was not a member of the bar in California. And now he didn't have a job. He had three young kids and no, no way to make a living. He became a janitor <laughs> at uh, University of California, Fullerton. Graveyard shift, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., cleaning the halls, mopping the halls. <laughs> and he, he was so happy. <laughs> I still remember. He was so happy. He was just so, we were in the church. We're in the, 
This is what we've been looking for our whole lives, and we're in the church life, and you know, we were living with saints, and it was, it was just, a, it was wonderful. It was a, quite a honeymoon. And we were in Yorba Linda for a year. This was in 1970 by then. We, came, we touched the church in 1969. And um, a year later, in the summer of 70, was when Brother Lee was sharing on the migration at that point to the four corners of the U.S. And he was burdened for the spread. So the Northeast, the Southeast, the, the, the South, uh, let's see, Northeast, Northeast, Northwest, the Southwest, and Southeast. And so the church in Yorba Linda, it was a little tiny church, began to pray, maybe we need to, some of us need to migrate. Begin to pray. Of course, this is way before the internet and where you could find out what was happening in a different city. They begin to pray and somehow they got a burden for Seattle, Washington. You heard of Seattle? The home of Starbucks. I heard y'all ran Starbucks out of Australia. <laughs> wow, good for you. Um, so in 1970, <clears throat> listen to this. I've never heard this before or since. The entire church in Yorba Linda migrated to Seattle. 60 adults and 120 children all migrated to Seattle. We literally bought a moving van that went up and down the West Coast, moving family by family to Seattle. <laughs> it's crazy. Nobody stayed behind. Not one person stayed behind. Everybody. And I, I don't know, do you know, um, would you happen to know Joel Kinnan? Maybe you, you may not know him. He was quite instrumental in the Lord's move to Russia, is where you may have heard his name. Um, <clears throat> but he was one of the leading brothers in Yorba Linda. And as the brothers and the saints were considering this, he, he called Brother Lee to tell Brother Lee, Brother Lee, we're considering migrating to Seattle. And he said, he had Brother Lee on the phone and told him that, Brother Lee, we just wanted to get your feeling about this. We're considering migrating to Seattle. Brother Lee said, Brother Joel, that's a hallelujah bomb. <laughs> Joel said, excuse me? <laughs> he said, that's a hallelujah bomb. <laughs> I don't know exactly what he meant by it, but it sounded good. He was very happy. <laughs> It's a hallelujah bomb. So again, everybody moved to Seattle. Now, like I said, this was before the internet. I can remember us pulling into Seattle in this, this big truck. And there was the first billboard that we saw said, would the last one out of Seattle please turn out the lights? What? That's what it said, really. Would the last one out of Seattle please turn out the lights? Of course, we didn't know anything about Seattle. Seattle is also the home of Boeing, which is a you know, huge aircraft uh, manufacturer. They had laid off tens of thousands of people right then. Tens of thousands. There was no jobs in Seattle. And everybody was leaving Seattle to try to get work somewhere else. So there were tons of houses. <laughs> But there was no jobs. So that's why the signs were up with the last one out of Seattle, turn out the lights. Of course, we didn't know that. So the brothers got up there. They got their families. What are you going to do? My dad drove a taxi. He uh, painted houses with some brothers. They just, whatever they could do to make a buck and support their families, they did it. But we're talking not about four or five people, 60 adults. So we're talking like 30 to 40 families that moved up there. And we're all living with each other because nobody could afford a house. You know, so everybody, you know, you get like two or three families living together in a house. And by then we had five kids. So we were full, full house already. It was glorious. It was nothing, nobody can remember anything other than it being glorious. <laughs> it was just glorious. Um, 
And then, you know, a few things about this, you know, and this is where my burden is with y'all as young working saints. You're just getting going in your careers and in life, you might say, as independent people and beginning to have families or to consider getting married. You know, my uh, family, we moved a lot. And I, I don't know if the education system is probably not the same in the States as it is here, is it? I mean, how you count it? Do you have, go through high school through 12th grade in that? Okay, I'm sorry for my ignorance about Australia. Um, I never went to the same school two years in a row until I was in 11th grade because we migrated every year. <laughs> and not one time, not one time did we move for my dad to get a better job, um, for better schools, for the kids, for a better house, for a better city. Every move was for the Lord's interest, was a migration. As us kids and the family always said, my dad never met a migration he wasn't burdened for. Any migration that came up, he was ready to go. <laughs> Pack up the five kids, let's go, we're ready. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, here's my point. The age that we're living in today, it will consume you. It's designed to consume you. It's mainly designed to consume you. To take your time, take your energy, so that you have no time and energy for the Lord's interest. That's just a fact. That's how the world works. I told you, I'm not, I just stopped my working career. I know what I'm talking about. And I had plenty of experiences of my own. I, I don't want to tell stories the whole time. But this age will suck up year after year of your life with promises, with more money, a better position, and at the end of the day, you're like Solomon. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I am concerned about this generation. Again, I, I hate to extrapolate the experience I have in the United States with the working saints that I'm involved with onto you, because I don't know if it's the same. I will admit my ignorance here. I don't know. But I see the young working saints, and I see their passivity towards the Lord and the Lord's interest. They have good jobs. They make good money. They can take nice vacations. But the thought of moving for the Lord's move? What? It's crazy talk. Now, if I get a promotion, sure, I'll move at a drop of a hat. If I get a new job, more money, I'm gone. But to move to another city for the Lord's move? Just no, no concept of that. It's like it's not even an option to talk about. Brothers, I'm telling you this. That's not our heritage in the Lord's recovery. That's not our history. That's not where we came from. You are the next generation. And in a very real sense, not trying to be dramatic, what the churches in Australia will be is what you will be.
There were ones before you in Australia who paid a big price to be in the Lord's recovery. But when you get born into it, probably many of you, it's easy to take it for granted and to very subtly over the years allow the values of the world to become your values and to be influenced to the point that you go to church on Sunday. Now I realize if you are at this camp you have a heart for the Lord. And if you're in this meeting today, I'm sure you have a heart for the Lord. So as we say in the United States, I'm probably preaching to the choir. You're already a believer. But still, I don't think it's bad to have this fellowship with you, to remind you. You know, a couple of things. Later, in my dad's life, I asked him, I asked him, I said, Dad, How did you, how did you decide to leave everything in Augusta, Georgia and follow the Lord to be a missionary? You had everything. And we know, to this day, we know the ones who were in my dad's law firm, they're all millionaires, multimillionaires. I said, how did you know to do that? What, what prompted you to do that? And I, I, had never, I didn't ask him that until the end of his life. And he told me. He said he was, he was somebody who had a time with the Lord in the morning. This was, you know, before the church life. But he always, he knew he needed to be in the Word in the morning have a time with the Lord, and he said he was reading in the middle of this decision-making process. He was spending time with the Lord, and he read John chapter 2. This is where, <clears throat> I'm sorry for getting emotional. This is when the Lord began his ministry, and you remember in John, the first thing he did was he went to a wedding. John chapter 2. And so he was reading this. And this is when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what have I to do? What have I to do in this that concerns you? My hour has not yet come. Okay, then here's the verse. He said, the Lord quickened this word to him. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do. Whatever he says to you, do. He's struggling at that point. What do I do? Do I become a missionary? Do I follow this? And he realized the Lord has already spoken to me. He's already told me to do it. Whatever he tells me to do, I have to do it. End of story. Off they go. Brothers and sisters, I think about this. That decision, that time with the Lord in the morning, changed the course not only of my mom and dad's life. Five siblings, five of us, we all have children. Three have already graduated from the full-time training. Two are in it right now. 
another one's going next term. Brothers and sisters, my point is this. Treasure your time with the Lord in the morning. Tre it is not. It is not a time. Our time with the Lord is a time with a person. It's not a time with a book. Thank the Lord we have the Holy Word for Morning Revival. That has been a blessing to the recovery, to the whole world. But don't let your time with the Lord degrade to, I read the gray area, check the box, I'm done. Goodbye, got time to go to work. That's not a time with a person. Brothers and sisters, our time with the Lord is precious. That is where he speaks to us. And you don't know, you don't know when that speaking could affect your life and affect your family's life. I am so glad my dad had a time with the Lord to give the Lord a way to speak to him and to shine on him that way. Brothers, all of our service in the church, all the things we're involved with, it is predicated on the fact that we have a living touch with the Lord day by day. We can never let this go. And I know when you're a working one, you're a working saint, that's hard. It's hard to do. You work all day, there's meetings at night, and then you get up and you do it again. And to get up in enough time to spend time with the Lord in a regular way is a battle. It's a fight every day. It's a fight every day, but it's a fight worth fighting. Amen. I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to tell me. I don't know what your experience is with your time with the Lord in the morning. How precious it is to you. How much you treasure it. How much you don't let it go. You don't let things come in. You get up and you have that time with, the, with your Lord every morning. Brothers and sisters, I just urge you for your service, for your life, spend time with the Lord in the morning. Fall in love with the Lord every day to the point that he is your friend and he speaks to you. He's your companion and he speaks to you and he makes his heart known to you about your life. Oh, Lord Jesus, brothers. It's, you know, we, we all, we're in the trainings and conferences. Have you ever been in a training or a conference where one of the brothers doesn't talk about spending time with the Lord in the morning? <laughs> you know, I've drawn two conclusions from that. Number one, it must be really important because it's brought up every conference and every training. Number two, they wouldn't keep talking about it if we were all doing it. <laughs> Don't you think? But they keep, the brothers keep ministering this. They keep sharing this. We must not have all arrived. Well, we're at the end of a year. We're starting a new year. Brothers and sisters, I would entreat you. Spend time with the Lord in the morning in 2019. Make this a part of your life that you never let go. It doesn't matter what happens. Your life starts changing. You, you get a job, that's a change. You get married, that's a change. You have kids, that's a huge change. But in all those changes, a constant has to be, you begin your day by touching the Lord. And you fight for that. You just fight for that time. I think we get... We get the wrong idea about the Christian life, what it's supposed to be like. It shouldn't be hard. You know, we, we, 
Craig and I came from, from the training, and um, it's on the book of Numbers. And I, 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 ser- I do some serving during the training. I missed most of the time that we were there, but I got enough to get this impression of, of the speaking. A couple of things. One is, Numbers, the book of Numbers is really misunderstood by most of us. Just because of opinions and concepts we have that blind us, like we were talking about earlier this morning. Um, Because when you think of Numbers, you think about the leprosy in Numbers, right? Miriam gets leprosy because she's rebellious. The thing about the earth opening up and swallowing people and all these, these strange things. Actually, that's not the point of, of Numbers. Numbers is actually a glorious book. It's a glory, it has a glorious ending to the book. But listen to how the book of Numbers ends. Numbers ends with the second generation being formed into the army to take the good land. That's how it ends. It wasn't the first generation who came out of, who paid a big price coming out of Egypt, had lots of experiences. Those were not the ones that became the army that went into the good land. It was the second generation. It was the ones who grew up in the church life, who came into the church life when they were young. Those were the ones. And what did they do? Everything that they enjoyed, they had to fight for. Everything they took in the good land, they had to fight for it. We think, well, it shouldn't be that hard, you know, it's, come on. We're Christians, this should be easy. The Lord should bless us, and okay, yeah, that's maybe, that's true in a certain way, if you understand blessing the right way. But they fought their way into the good land, and everything they enjoyed in the good land came as the result of a fight. You should expect in your life, in the church life, and in your personal Christian life, to be a fighter. You should expect it's going to be hard to spend time with the Lord in the morning. It's hard to do it day after day, week after week, year after year. All the changes in life that happen. But you fight for your portion. And you get a mindset to fight for your portion. Learn to have a fighting spirit like Joshua and Caleb. Those giants will be food for us. Getting up in the morning will be food for me. I'm going to eat it for breakfast. Now the other thing that was quite striking, you know, we have the concept about the children of Israel in the wilderness. This was certainly my concept, I I will admit it, is that when when they were in the wilderness, they were just kind of meandering around the wilderness, just no direction, you know, just, just wandering around, just aimlessly. What are they doing? I mean, it just seemed, and they did it for how many years? Just wandering in the wilderness. Actually, that's not at all what was going on. That didn't, that's not what happened. They were in a military formation the whole time they were in the wilderness. And they were being led by the Lord every day. And the brothers, they drew a, um, they drew a picture actually on the board that was awesome. I hope you get to see it. Because I'm not going to be able to do it justice at all, but I can give you the summary of it. This is what? This is, well, let's do it something like this. That's the, the tent of meetings, right? You know what I'm talking about. The holy place with the altars, the holy, I mean the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. This was the center of their life. Packing it, unpacking it, carrying it, setting it up, taking it down, 
This was the center of their life. But listen to this. When they would stop and the Lord would lead them to go somewhere and then to stop again, it wasn't, hey, wherever you want to stay, you stay. No, each tribe was assigned a place to stay. Three tribes, three tribes, three tribes. All on each side with the Levites right here at the entrance to the tent of meeting. But here is the remarkable thing, very inspiring thing. Every one of the tribes and all the families in that tribe, they had to face the tent of meeting. In other words, the center of their life was the tent of meeting. They faced the tent of meeting. When you walked out your tent door, there's the tabernacle. Very significant, brothers and sisters. What is the center of your life as a young working saint? Where is your tent facing? It's a fair question. It's a fair question to ask. What's the, you know, one of the things working saints will often say, and I had this, I've had all this, all, I know this because I've, I've lived it, I've struggled it. I have three children. Right now I have two, two daughters in college, and a 15-year-old son. So I know what it's like to raise a family. I know what it's like to have a full-time job that's very demanding. And at the same time, be serving in the church. And so you have the thought, well, I've got my family, I've got my job, my profession, I've got the church life. How do I, how do I devote my time here? How do I split up my time? My, I got kids, you know, they're needing all kinds of attention and you got to be with them. I got a job, my boss is breathing down my back, more, more, more. I got the church life. I, you all serve in the church life. I serve in the church. We have demands on us. So how do you split up your time? Brothers and sisters, I can just tell you this, what I discovered over time. Let me tell you the way not to do it, to say, okay, well, I got three main things in life, okay? Kids, my family, I got my job, I got the church life. Okay, 33, 33, 33. Everybody gets a third. So a third of my time, it goes with my kids, a third of my time for my job, a third of my time for the church life. That seems fair, right? You know what? That doesn't work. That does not work. What that results in? It results in a very unhappy person and an unhappy family. Not doing a very good job at work. They don't feel good about anywhere. This is, and I, I'm just telling you my experience here. You're not going to probably read this in, the, in a life study. <laughs> my experience is 100% to Christ in the church. Amen. My tent door needs to open up to the tabernacle, to the tent of meeting. Then you know what I found out? Everything else falls into place. I've got a center now. My center is the church life. It answers all the questions about my job and about my family if 100% I am focused on Christ and the church. And my wife and I had this conversation. I told her, I said, Honey, I have the conviction, strong conviction, the best thing that I can do for this family is to give myself to Christ in the church. That's the best thing I can do. It's not to give 33% here and 30 No, that's ridiculous. Make my center Christ in the church. Everything else falls into place. Everyone else is at peace. I could tell you all kinds of stories. I, I'm not going to do that. Related to my job, I had a, a very significant job. But I knew where the line was of what I was not willing to do 
And I told my boss that. And I won't even, because I'm not trying to apply this to anybody else, but my point is everything else fell into place. With my children, there, I don't know what it's like in Australia. Again, my ignorance is showing. I, saw, I read an article recently. It said, the new religion in the United States, children. <laughs> the new religion is children. People live for their children. Their whole life is built around that little thing making that kid happy, giving them every advantage in life. And that's the center. Their tent is focused on that kid. And that's becoming very common in the church life, where the kids are the center. Saints, I'm telling you, don't do that. Don't do it. <clears throat> your children will be much happier when they know they're not the center. When the church is the center. Our kids have grown up knowing that. They, my kids all played sports, they all did music, and we got to certain points. I had my oldest daughter is a very good soccer player. And we got to a point where it was time to go on the travel, t travel squad. And they picked her out of her team and said, we want you to be on this elite team. And six months out of the year, we're going to be traveling every weekend all around the southeast. I said, not us. Not, not this family. <laughs> we're not doing that. I mean, it, was, it wasn't even like, oh, we got this big decision to make. What, what do you, the decision was made a long time ago. No, we don't do that, okay? You got a whole bunch of other kids you can choose from, not my kid. She's, you can, she can play on a Saturday down at the park, but no, we're not doing that. It just simplified everything. It made things very simple in our family, in my job, what the central was. I just beg you, Make the church your center where you live. Make your church the center of your life. Spend time with the Lord in the morning. Make the church your center. I, how many, well, don't answer, but let me ask the question. How many of you are regularly in the prayer meeting of the church? This is a big problem. You should be the ones in the churches who are bearing the burden in the church. This is the age group that should be bearing the burden for the church, doing the heavy lifting, so to speak. But wow, where are the, where are the young working saints in the prayer meeting? Now maybe it's different here. But I'm, I'm, I'm using a different perspective from my, my area. I'm working overtime, home playing with the kids. Um, I, don't, I mean, I understand the pressures. I, I'm not... Somebody needs to live for Christ in the church. Somebody needs to pay the price to make the church the center of their life. The prayer meeting of the church, brothers and sisters, the prayer meeting is where a very unique thing is transpiring. The church is fulfilling one of its major responsibilities on the earth, which is to stand against God's enemy and to unleash his move on the earth. The problem is this. There's nothing in the prayer meeting for you. Did you know that? There's nothing for you. It's a fight to go to the prayer meeting every single week because there's nothing there for you. 
I mean, the Lord's table, we go, we get, it's very enjoyable. We get to enjoy the Lord. We have a feast. There's a lot of enjoyment. Oh, no, no. The prayer meeting is a battle. It's a fight. You don't go to the prayer meeting and take a nap. You go there to fight. And you're not fighting for your own things. I always have the impression when I'm walking in the door of the prayer meeting, it's like, okay, here's the door. Here's the chair sitting outside the door. I need to check all my private interests, all my concerns, all my worries, leave them right there on that chair. They'll be there after the prayer meeting. I'll pick them up then. But for this next hour, I'm here fighting the battle in the body for the Lord's move on the earth, fighting for Germany, fighting for the Lord's move there, fighting for the Lord's spread in Australia. Brothers and sisters, you need to be in the prayer meeting of the church. You need to take the lead to fight. Don't make the older saints take the lead. The, the faithful older saints who've been meeting in your locality for decades, you're going to make them take the lead? When the meeting is dead and the meeting's not getting going and you're just going to sit there and wait for one of the leading brothers to do something? You bear the, the responsibility to exercise your spirit, to find the burden of the Lord for that meeting. Oh, Lord Jesus, don't be passive. Don't be passive young people. Don't be passive working saints. This is what we're living for. And you can do that as a working saint. I know, I know from my own experience. You can, you can fight the battle in the body and be a working saint and be the backbone of the church where you are. I encourage you, brothers and sisters. I guess, what time are we supposed to stop? Probably now, huh? No, that's, we, don't, we don't need to drag it out. Um, so anyway, I probably, I don't know if this made any sense to you or not. But I just, I'm really burdened for your age group. I'm really burdened for the young working saints. You really are the backbone of the church life. You should, this is the time that you should be bearing the responsibility. We can't look to the young people, to the high schoolers, to bear the burden in the church. And we shouldn't look to the 70 and 80 year old saints to bear the burden in the church. This is the group that should be bearing the burden and be open to the Lord's speaking, to the Lord's move. Where's the Lord gonna spread in Australia next? I don't know. But who's gonna be available? That's the question. Who's willing to respond to the Lord's move, to spread the church life? in Australia. It's got to come from right here. It's got to come from here. Don't look at anybody else. This is the group that should be spearheading the spread of the Lord's move in Australia. Okay, that's all I have.